When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Detectives say the 32-year-old cold case was cracked with the help from a deck of cards. On each card, a different cold case, whether it be a wanted person, a missing person, or an unsolved murder. Well, investigators say a prison inmate saw the victim's face on one of the cold case playing cards and then tipped investigators off. The Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department had the cards made up at the suggestion of a former cold case detective. I'm Tommy Ray. Cold case card program I started here in Polk County has since grown across the U.S. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the House. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 1 and our final episode for this season, Episode 12 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak. And I'm Lori Jennings. And this is a special episode, and we thought we would bring it full circle and finish the season with an update to one of the most baffling and compelling cold cases, the Jennifer Kessie case which, as many of you may know, was our very first episode of Dealing Justice. Jennifer Kessie vanished from her condo in Orlando, Florida in January of 2006. It's a case that continues to mystify everyone, and Jennifer going missing is just the beginning. This case is filled with twists and turns and lots of courtroom action. Jennifer's family, along with a loyal team of friends and co-workers, plus one very dedicated private investigator, have made unprecedented strides in Jennifer's case. We're going to do a quick recap of Jennifer's case and then jump right into the episode. If you'd like more details on Jennifer's case from the beginning, go back and listen to episode one now. As always, thank you for listening and sharing. Please help us deal justice for the Kessie family. Our intention with this series is to humanize each person on the cold case playing cards so they become more than just a victim. So that if someone is holding information that could help bring them home, that you feel compelled to act. Our goal is to lay out the timelines and pertinent details that may jog someone's memory. We would love to see the day where there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we will continue working with Tommy Ray and telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. This is episode 12, the update on the Jennifer Kessie case. Three of Diamonds, Florida Deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us back to Orlando, Florida, 
where we return to the ugly side of the city beautiful. Jennifer Kessie vanished from her condo near the mall at Millennia in January of 2006. Every other search for the 24-year-old to this point has failed to find her. Jennifer Kessie was 24 years old and at the prime of her life. It's hard to believe she vanished without a trace. Jennifer's father, Drew. January 23rd, Jennifer came back from a four and a half day vacation in St. Croix with her then boyfriend, Rob Allen. He lived in Fort Lauderdale. She and Orlando, long distance relationship. When she came home from uh, St. Croix, well, actually, she got in the 22nd, stayed at Rob's that Sunday night, got up very early, I think like five o'clock Monday morning, the 23rd, went to work, worked all day long, uh, spoke to myself at about 6.15. Spoke to um, her mom, Joyce, spoke to her brother, Logan, spoke to her girlfriend that night, as well as her boyfriend, uh, Rob Allen, again. Jennifer was presumably in bed, tired from the day and getting back. And Rob was at home, uh, also in, in his bed, in his condo. The last person to speak to Jennifer on January 23rd, 2006, was Rob Allen at 9.57 p.m. And that was the last uh, that we heard from Jennifer. Anyone heard from Jennifer. Tuesday, January 24th, 2006. It is presumably that she would get up and leave her condo around 7.15 to 7.30 every day to go to work. And she didn't make it into work that day. It was approximately 10.30, quarter to 11, where we knew upper management where she worked at Central Florida Investments. And I actually had, as well as Joyce, had one of our friends call us and say, hey, Jennifer did not make it into work. She was supposed to have an appointment this morning, uh, a meeting. She didn't. Is anything up? And I said, not that I know. Everything's fine. But hold on. Give me a minute. I'll call her. And the rule was always, if mom or dad calls, you pick the phone up. And even though she was out of the house in college and graduated, if we called, she always picked the phone up, period. It, you know, since she was 15 years old and she got the car and the phone. So I immediately called. It went immediately to voicemail. Usually you hear three rings, four rings. She was set up for four rings before it goes into voicemail. It never even did that. The call went directly into voicemail. And I immediately knew something was wrong right there. Uh, so by about 11, 15, 11, 30, we were on our way out the door from where we live down in Manatee County, two-hour drive out to Orlando, all the time calling police, calling hospitals, um, calling jails, just calling her girlfriends, calling just calling anyone to say, hey, can you get in touch with Jennifer? And no one was able to whatsoever. Meanwhile, the Kessie family was desperate to convince the authorities in Orlando that something was desperately wrong. By 4.30 p.m. that same day, the Kessie family had a group of friends and family gathered at Jennifer's apartment and were already distributing missing person flyers throughout the area. For two days, the search continued for Jennifer. Volunteers searched the area by foot, police canvassed the area by horseback and helicopter, and finally, they got a break in the case. Jennifer's car, a black Chevy Malibu was found parked at a nearby apartment complex called Huntington on the Green. Police were hopeful when they discovered the apartment complex where her car was found actually had working security cameras. But that hope would soon dissipate. This person's silhouette is behind a fence post every three seconds. And we can't see that face. 
the luckiest man in the world. Her picture is still up all over central Florida, but the leads have started to dwindle. Tonight, police... And Jennifer's been off the face of the map since basically 9.57 p.m. on January 23rd, 2006. Nothing's been found except for her car. And it's a challenge. But that is the time frame, basically, of Jennifer's disappearance. This episode is being recorded in January of 2021. That means it's been 15 years since Jennifer was last seen by friends and family. President George W. Bush was in office. That really solidifies the time gone by. The world she left, where we've been, where we're going, and all without her. The mosaic at Millennia is now fully renovated with a guard gate that actually requires a key pass now. Her then-boyfriend Rob is now married with kids of his own. Her friends are having babies, they're getting promotions, getting divorced. The world keeps turning, but for Drew and Joyce Kessie, Nothing has changed since a day in January when their daughter Jennifer went missing. Mummified in pain and determination, the Kessies have dedicated their years, days, minutes, seconds to finding Jennifer and bringing her home. Their efforts to gain access to Jennifer's case finally paid off. In an unprecedented settlement, the Kessies reached an agreement with the OPD and were actually granted access to Jennifer's case files. Jennifer's father, Drew, explains why they had to take such drastic measures and what the ruling actually entailed. Two years ago, we started a court case against Orlando PD, the chief himself, as well as the mayor. Not something I really wanted to do, but something I felt that we had to do. We weren't moving forward anywhere for like the last seven to nine years. And we came to an out-of-court agreement about three months into the court proceedings of whereby Orlando PD agreed to give us all 16,000 plus pages of Jennifer's case, as well as 67 hours plus of uh, film in exchange for a little over $18,000, which is the cost of manpower to actually, they have to go physically through each page, basically redact any social security numbers, any uh, national crime institute information, NCIC information has to be by law, has to be redacted. So we received that, believe it or not, we started receiving about 18 months ago. The mm-hmm. first line of the agreement with Orlando Police Department is they are no longer responsible for investigating Jennifer Kessie's disappearance. It works like this, basically. And the chief has said, if anything comes up, we'll investigate it. So it's like, okay, give it to us on silver platter and we'll take care of it. Although this is the outcome the Kessies wanted, Drew tells us being an investigator in your own child's disappearance takes its toll. Um, daunting, expensive, it's time-consuming, it's something that a father shouldn't be doing. They've tried. They've tried their hearts out. They've said they tried their hearts out. Not a problem. This is a very difficult thing to do. But damn it, ask some other people who know how to do it to take it, please. Don't leave it for the family. I shouldn't be doing this. We're just fighting forward. It's, It's very tough. Parents can tell us about their child like nobody else, and it's such an important part of honoring the victim. But when it comes to investigating and solving the case, their motherly instincts and fatherly intuitiveness is not admissible evidence. For this reason, Drew hired private investigator Michael Toretta. I had a chance to speak with Michael about Jennifer's case and how he became involved. My name is Michael Toretta, hired by the Kessie family to find their daughter Jennifer. For 30 years, I was a federal agent, 
And when I retired, I felt there was something more that I needed to do. So I chose private investigations and I set up my business here in Tampa. Michael is a retired DEA agent with an impressive career. And together, the duo are determined to bring Jennifer home. He's very dedicated. He's been with us for over two years now as our main PI. He listens to everyone and he will reach out to almost everyone if we don't speak directly. He's tenacious as far as, you know, putting the puzzle together. And it has taken time. Uh, Sometimes I get frustrated at at the amount of time that that's taken. But we are moving in areas now. Takes time. It takes resources. I want people to know that over this 14 years, it's all been building up to this. And we've asked for the opportunity over the 14 years, especially within the last, so to say, three or four, to give us the opportunity to at least have a look at it. And now we have. And I think we are making little tiny baby steps finally. And I think there's a lot more to come. The family getting access to their loved one's case file is definitely not standard operating procedure. Michael and Drew explain just how uncommon this actually is. My understanding, it is the first time in Florida, but we believe in America that an open act of missing persons case files were actually turned over to the family. It's almost unheard of. It's like hitting the lottery. I know attorney Paul Sisko, who I also work with on quite a few cases here in Tampa, was assigned to this investigation and by the Kessie family. And they had indicated they were going to go into court to try to get the Orlando Police Department investigator file. I didn't think we had a chance, but it was unbelievable when Paul Sisko and the Kessie family went in and pleaded with the judge and The judge allowed the case to become ours. It's just an amazing thing that was done. And I don't know how much more or how many more cases in the future will have, you know, family actually taken control of the investigation. But as I said before, this is one in a million and it's like hitting the lottery. And, uh, you know, we're very happy to have the file and uh, we're trying to do whatever we can with the information uh, contained within. You know, how did you feel when you initially got the files? No, when I first got the files, I wanted to go to look at the first two weeks of the Orlando Police Department investigation. I felt within the first two weeks, the interviews, the evidence, Everything would have came to light, and I was able to see what the police officers actually did and how they conducted their investigation from the point they met with the Kessie family and found out that their daughter didn't show up for work. And what they did as a follow-up, I thought those first two weeks would be the most critical pieces of that puzzle. And what I found was a lack of investigative reports. And when I say the lack of investigative reports is two detectives were assigned to this case, uh, Detective Browning and Gauze. And what we found was that these two detectives did not write any reports. So not even the first two weeks, but the first three months until they retired. After three months of this investigation, we find that both detectives, one after the other, 
retired. So now we have the lack of reports written by the first two detectives on this case. And then what we find is a series of more detectives taking this case. Seemed like it never went the way it should have gone because there were too many people investigating. That was the problem that I had. Okay, there was information in the file. But I believe the investigative reports would have been so much more helpful in this investigation. Why do you think, Michael, in your professional opinion, do you think they just didn't think she was missing? Like, what, in your opinion, do you think is why they did not take this seriously? That's the million-dollar question. When I started to look into, you know, the investigative file, I started to question what made these detectives not write a report because there were detectives after the initial two that started to write reports. But when you think of 18,000 documents, uh, you think of those documents being at least 10%, if not more, being investigative reports, okay? I don't even think 10% of the 18,000 documents are reports. So the lack of report writing was definitely an issue in this case file, you know, that we received. It's just troubling, you know, because the reports normally tell the story and we don't have the story. And I can tell you, there were detectives that did the right thing on this investigation. The initial two that I had mentioned before wish there was more report writing you know, because reports tell a story. And if you don't have the reports, you don't know what the story was, what the detectives were thinking, who they were interviewing, and a lot of that was lost. That's why it's so important to the uh, investigator and like me, the private investigator years later to look and try to see if there's a story. You know, you can see where the detective started and where the detective finished. But in this case, there's no story in the initial three months of this investigation. So initially, getting the files was a disappointment. It wasn't the treasure chest of information they were hoping for. But the really hard part for Drew was seeing just how long Jennifer's case went without any attention. And when we received the files, what we really found out is in the last nine years, our dedicated detective at Orlando Police Department, she's not written a paper, an item, or supplement in nine years. That's heartbreaking. Even though there was no movement in her case over the last nine years, Jennifer's case files contained hours and hours of audio files and thousands of documents. And when I say thousands, I mean the Kessie family received roughly 16,000 documents from the OPD, 16,000 documents to pour over and audio to examine in Jennifer's disappearance. Myself and Mr. Kessie were getting thumb drives, you know, and we would get them. We probably got about eight to 10 deliveries of thumb drives as the uh, OPD completed putting these things on a disc for the Kessie family. So we were getting it piecemealed, but wow. we were getting it, which was good because some of them were longer than others. So you had to spend maybe a week or two or three just on one thumb drive. That's how much information it contained. 
16,000 documents and hours and hours of audio, you would assume there were some leads, some people to follow up with, some sort of surprise information, right? I believe the only surprise I had in the hours of audio and video recordings was the absence of audio recordings of workers employed at the Mosaic. You know, you got to remember, the morning Jennifer disappeared, I believe as soon as the Orlando PD determined something criminal happened to Jennifer, I believe they should have closed the gates to the Mosaic condominiums and interviewed everyone at the Mosaic. And when I say this, by doing this, they would have obtained names, addresses, and most importantly, identification for each worker. They might have been successful, you know, in identifying the person of interest who I believe was employed at a mosaic as a worker and could have been compared to the individual who was observed exiting and parking Jennifer's car at the Huntington on a green and walking away from Jennifer's vehicle. At the time of her disappearance, Jennifer's condominium complex had been undergoing a major renovation, and many of the laborers on site were not documented employees. Some were said to have even been staying in the empty condos throughout the apartment complex while they worked. Jennifer had told friends and family members on several occasions that the construction workers made her uncomfortable with their constant catcalling, whistling, and just in general harassing her. And due to the language barrier, investigators were unable to communicate with many of them. Like I said before, is each piece of any investigation is a puzzle. It could be a small piece, sometimes a little larger piece. But by interviewing each and every one of the workers before they knew what was going on and the gates are shut and the police basically said, hey, we need to interview you. We need to see a piece of identification. We need to know the company you work for. We need to know how we get in touch with you. Later on, they could have went through all the pieces of the puzzle and determined if that individual who was interviewed could have been the person of interest parking Jennifer's car. And, you know, a break is a break. It could have been a lucky break, but you never know because the person parks the car. The person looks like he's either in a painter or construction uniform. There's information that that individual could have walked toward, back towards the mosaic. So if that person was interviewed, we would have known who that person was. Did they ever get a comprehensive list of the people working around her apartment? Were they ever interviewed? I guess that's one of the issues that we have, you know, with the investigation is we know that they initially come in. The family asked the police to respond. They tell the police that their daughter, one, you know, never showed up for work. It took hours before they understood that something happened to Jennifer, okay? And I feel during that time, a lot of these undocumented workers left the area of the mosaic and maybe left Florida altogether if they had any involvement with Jennifer's disappearance. You know, everybody can pick up a file years later or even a year later and say, I would have done it this way. But I think the most critical witnesses that maybe could have been gathered were the workers as soon as this happened. The files were not all they were hoping for, but as you know, this case has proved elusive on so many levels. 
But Michael is not the kind of guy who waits for reports and a list of suspects to be handed to him. He has his own list of suspects. You know, there's several possible suspects in this investigation. And as you know, none have ever been moved because it's very difficult to prove that they were there at any given point of the investigation. Although no one has been named an official suspect, a person of interest did surface in this case. When police interviewed a housekeeper at Jennifer's complex, they showed her a picture of the security camera footage and the person's obstructed face. She immediately said, that looks like Chino. Police later learned Chino used to live in another building at Jennifer's condo complex and was a former maintenance worker there. In fact, Chino had done work in Jennifer's condo just one week before her disappearance. And that's not all. Police discovered that an anonymous tip came in the very first week of Jennifer's disappearance and the caller, you guessed it, named Chino as someone that they should be interested in. And at the time that the police decided to pursue this, Chino was serving time in a Florida prison for statutory rape of a teenage girl, a crime he committed two years after Jennifer's disappearance. Police did look into Chino. They interviewed him and said he was cooperative, and he even took a polygraph test and passed. Michael discusses Chino and gives us an update. In regards to Chino, Chino was interviewed by myself and attorney Paul Siskel, and we continue to interview people, you know, possible suspects and people close to these individuals for information that might not have ever been uh, gotten from anyone on this investigation. And he may actually have a witness. I received a call from a uh, law enforcement source, not on this investigation. The person had indicated that there was a woman that might have information pertaining to a uh, carpet going into a lake in Gotha, Florida. As a result of that tip, I called the uh, person and she indicated that approximately 10 months after Jennifer disappeared, she observed a uh, pickup truck driving on a field, basically, kicking up dust and all. Comes down to the waterline of this small lake and she observes the individual get out, go to the back of the pickup, take out a six to eight foot carpet remnant and go to the uh, the lake, dump it in, watches it sink, gets back into his pickup truck and speeds away. And as a result of that information, called law enforcement authorities and law enforcement went out on two different occasions, their divers, and to this day, we have not found that uh, remnant in the water. What is the name of the lake, Michael? Can you tell me that? Yeah, it's Lake Fisher. Jennifer Kessie's family told me they called the Orange County Sheriff's Office this week after getting a tip about an area near a lake in Gotha that could have been connected to their daughter's disappearance. Orange County Sheriff's deputies could be seen Friday afternoon searching a lake in a neighborhood in Gotha. Jennifer Kessie's family says a tip led them here. Kessie's family says this area used to be just open land back in 2006 when Jennifer first went missing. The Kessies say they'd been searching the area for days when their own private cadaver dogs alerted to something. Uh, it was necessary at that point 
to call authorities in. But after deploying a dive team and their own canines, the Kessie family says the sheriff's office came up empty-handed. Right now, exhausted, um, a little bit distraught, uh, but you know, we're, we're, we're people who move forward. Police believe the then 24-year-old left her condo near the Mall of Millennia and headed to work only to vanish. Throughout those years, though, her family has never stopped searching, and they say this latest dead end isn't going to change that. You know, we're working for Jen as hard as we can, and we're going to continue to do so in a very um, professional manner and in a very aggressive manner to move forward to see if we can truly find our daughter. The search ultimately ended with no new findings, and yet another disappointing blow to the Kessie family. However, Michael feels that Lake Fisher may still hold some answers. The landscape basically changed. There's now, you know, million-dollar houses bordering this lake, and uh, I feel the witness is 100% accurate. I believe she saw what she told me she saw. I discussed this weekly with Mr. Kessie, and we will be going back to search the lake. Lori and I have an office that is actually close to Lake Fisher in Gotha, Florida. We're literally about 10 minutes away. So we thought, why not take a drive over and check it out and see maybe what the witness might have observed. Okay, so we're not even a mile away. We're not far from there at all. I am familiar with this area. I know you're not. It's definitely a more, you know, woodsy, quaint little area. Lots of suburbs. Little church on the corner here. But it seems like a very nice area. It's a, it's a very nice area. That's why I'm, I've never actually been to Fisher Lake, but I am curious to see the setup because from this area, the way I know it, I, you know, I'm not sure where somebody would pull in and have a truck and do all of that. So, yeah. Okay, so we are coming up on the lake. Okay, so we're turning right into a subdivision. Wow, there's some nice houses here now. When this happened, you know, roughly 15 years ago, these houses, this area, the suburb, I mean, this uh, community wasn't here, is that correct? Right, that's correct. You wanna get out and take a look? Mm -hmm. And you know, even, Okay, so this may not have all been developed around here, but even today there's some sides that are just still wooded, you know? Like you said, suburbs around it, but there's definitely open area where somebody could have pulled up and, uh, and dropped the carpet in there. It will be interesting to see. I know that there's unofficially a group that's going to come back out. I know that Michael, you know, said that they did not feel like they were finished here. Something that both Lori and I were struck by is that Lake Fisher is not really close to Jennifer's condo where she went missing from. It's actually roughly 12 miles away. It's tucked into the back of a small, upscale suburban neighborhood. And then all of a sudden, we had a thought. It's interesting, too, because let's talk about, okay, so this is 12 miles from where she lived, but where is this in relation to if where she works? Because there's some theories out there that possibly someone that worked with her was involved and I feel like this lake is closer to where she works That's and if exactly, that other person yeah. worked with her who was late to work that day even though it wasn't dropped off on that day but I'm saying if he knew this route and you know possibly this could be an area that 
is close to work. Like, I just find that interesting. Yeah. It's definitely closer to Westgate in Ocoee than it is to her condo in uh, by the Millennium Mall. So that's interesting to note. Um, we'll have to go back and look and see exactly how close, but it's definitely closer. Mm-hmm. And that would seem to make a lot more sense. I just find it hard to wrap my brain around somebody picking this lake. I mean, obviously things happen, but usually people go somewhere where they're familiar with. So if this person was one theory, an undocumented worker, you know, that was not living here as a resident, whatever, then this is odd that they would know about this place. But this is definitely something that a local, somebody who let thing worked with or whatever, this is definitely something that they would be maybe familiar with if you're from this area. Hard to believe we could be looking out here and this could be, this lake could hold the answer. Yeah, and I think that's why Drew says, you know, you've got to look at everything. Like, there's no assumptions here. This is his daughter. There's no time for assumptions. Just what is going, you know, what has happened. And it could be anything. Another update in the case, as recently as November of 2020, local Orlando media released new pictures that were found regarding Jennifer's car. Drew Kessie would like to set the record straight about that. 14 years since Jennifer Kessie disappeared in Orlando without a trace, but newly released police photos suggest that a violent struggle took place that day that she was reported missing right there on the hood of her car. And this could possibly bring about some new leads in the case. And there's about 150 different pictures of the car overall, where we only saw like maybe three or four of the car up until that point. Jennifer was reported missing after she didn't show up to work on the morning of January 24th, 2006. Her black Chevy Malibu was found abandoned one mile away from her home. Drew Kessie believes the markings on the hood show signs of a violent struggle. Well, I mean, I think it's... I think it's self-evident. If, it, if you look really close, it, it almost looks like someone was slammed down over the, the front hood um, driver's side headlight onto the hood and then almost like pulled off of it with fingertips and all. You know, just got chills saying that. Investigators also uncovered a previously unseen fingerprint belonging to the victim, as well as a large boot print near the gas pedal. The family is hoping that by sharing these photos with the public, someone will come forward with information. It, it was very tough because, you know, we, we've had pictures of the car. You know, they gave us three or four pictures of the car that we've seen over the 14 years. When we got the file, there's about 140, 150 pictures of the car totally. And it was just better pictures of the car in there. And, you know, three of us on the same day within my organization saw it and said, like, oh, look at this. And we, we approached an old detective and said, what's up with this? And his response was, well, that's your crime scene. Really? 13 years down the road? You're telling us now? And we can't get that. That car's gone. And you're the one that noticed the boot print. Yeah, and the boot print is sitting right there. Nothing even written or said about the boot print. But I'm like, hey, look at the boot print. Look at the boot. <laughs> what the hell is this? So and that's another thing, you know, just to work, work through. I mean, there is a database of, of boot prints from my scenes. There is that database now out there. Um, but again, it's just something that, I don't know, I look at that as a layperson in a picture and say, okay. It, I mean, if you're the CSI guy that took the picture of it, aren't you going to say something about it? Yeah, and there's nothing in the file about it. Not not specifically about the boot print, no. Not about that sitting there, no. They just said what shoes were laying around, which were um, sandals. 
Right. It's right below the whoever drove it last. They got to put their foot there. That's yeah. probably what you do to get out. Oh, so you know, it's it, it's it's tough as the family to have to try and deal with this, so to say, professionally and try and figure it out now where we have people. And it is my true belief, and I, I've been trying to t- talk to as many people who want to listen about this, but it is my true belief that we have a we have a lot of long-term missing people in America, okay? Mm-hmm. 1.5% of the 700,000 missing on average that we have are long-term missing. Um, you know, we, we need to have regional offices across the United States, maybe three of them, maybe four of them, whereby we have specialized task force looking for our long-term missing people because we are America. We need to find people who are truly missing in America. The pictures taken of Jennifer's car, both the hood of the car and the boot print, are considered possible clues to some and dismissed by others as irrelevant, at least for now. Either way, it's the Kessie's information now to do with and use how they see fit. You never know when an irrelevant finding could solve the case years down the line. Just look at DNA. Most importantly, the Kessies are now responsible themselves solely for leading the charge in the investigation into the disappearance of their daughter, Jennifer Joyce Kessie. Not a car. It's not credit cards. Not money. It's not a house. It's human life. It's, it is truly what our government was, is, is created for, truly, right? Mm-hmm. To protect Americans. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Jennifer got cut short on that. It's no secret the Kessie family feels let down by the Orlando Police Department. But Drew absolutely wants it known that the community of Orlando has never let them down and has always been there for them. First of all, we have to thank the Orlando community. They have never stopped supporting Jennifer and our family, ever. I mean, to this day, people still come out and they're like, I think I know something. Or they'll come out and say, you know, I called this in 13 and a half years ago and the cops came out and asked me one question or I called this in and they never even called me back. I don't even know what happened. So we're going through all that process. But Orlando community has, you're there, you're with us, you're with Jennifer and it is all about Jennifer. So we ask you to continue to do what you have been doing for 14 years. If you know something, go to Jennifer's Facebook page, private message us. It comes right to us. Go to her GoFundMe. That comes directly to my email right here on the phone. I'm talking to you. So we, what we can ask is, please continue what you're doing. Let me tell you something. We would be where we are today without truly the people that listen to you, that listen to all the reports and everything and us. We wouldn't be close to what's going on today. And we are humbled beyond belief that they are still with us, that they still make calls. And they support Jennifer almost unconditionally as much as we do. And, and you can't take that. We can't buy that. And we thank them from our heart. Michael Toretta firmly believes that someone out there knows what happened to Jennifer that day in January of 2006. And he pleads with anyone who does to please get him the information anyway, anyhow you can. I would like public to know that we need everyone's help. 
with this investigation. But I believe there is someone out there who knows exactly what happened to Jennifer, okay? I need that person to have the strength to finally call, text, or email and let us know where we can find Jennifer. And a special plea goes out to the person who parked Jennifer's vehicle. That person, I, I hope, will have the courage one day to finally identify themselves and tell us what they know. The Kessie family has suffered long enough and needs to know what happened to their daughter, Jennifer. And the one thing I can tell you, as Mr. Kessie tells me all the time, if that person, that person of interest, would like to stay anonymous, that's fine with the family. You know, tell your lawyer, tell your pastor or someone you trust. Just give us the information so we can find Jennifer. As long as Drew is alive, he will always be searching for his daughter. He just needs that one person to come forward. We still need that one person, and that's all it takes, is that one person to say, I can't believe this is still going on. I know something. I know this kid did this, or I know that dude was over here, or this lady did this. Come forward. It's okay. And so many people are afraid to come forward because they think we're looking at them, like the workers at that mosaic. No, not really. We need to speak to them because they're there. They live there. They work there. Their life was there. They're probably seeing something that they don't even realize is important to us. So talk to us. Answer our questions because we're putting a huge puzzle together over here. Help us out a little. This is going to take a very special person to bring Jennifer home, period. As we end the recording of our final episode of this first season of Dealing Justice, and it's just days away from the 15-year mark of Jennifer's disappearance, this May, Jennifer Kessie would have been 40 years old. A recent posting from Drew Kessie in tribute to his daughter Jennifer seemed a perfectly fitting way to close out and honor her in this episode. He simply wrote... Jennifer, we love you in a place where there is no space or time. We love you for our lives, for you are a child of ours. And when our lives are over, remember when we were together. Because we are alone in singing the song for you, the Kessie family. You know, this was an interesting case for us because it was a follow-up. Um, it's just fascinating, and it was such a pleasure to speak with Michael Toretta and always the Kessie family and Drew and to see their dedication to Jennifer. We share a special kinship with this case. This is our hometown, and this is where she went missing. We would honestly love, obviously, with all of them, to see nothing more than this new year to bring closure for this family. And I really do feel like they're on the cusp of something, you know, Jennifer was a 24-year-old, beautiful young woman that had so much going for her. And, you know, this family, they are relentless in their search to find her. Let's just talk about kind of quickly touch base on everything that's happened with this case. You know, she went missing in January of 2006. So it's been 15 years. She lived at the Mosaic of Millennia by the Millennium Mall. And back in 2006. And you said it wasn't really a great area back then, right? In 2006? It wasn't that it was a bad area. It was just a growing area. It was actually kind of transitioning into these 
luxury condominiums during that time. So, you know, like I said, you have the Mall of Millennia there. You have lots of restaurants. There's bars. I mean, it's not a bad area. But again, it was a transitioning area. Like an up and coming type of area, which is why there was a lot of construction to convert those apartments to condos, which is important. So in 2006, there was a lot of construction workers. The place pretty much was kind of vacant. We've talked about that before in episode one. So there's a lot of construction going around. So again, if anybody, if that rings a bell to anybody of somebody who worked there in construction during that time or knew somebody that did, I think that's really important. I think in talking to Michael Toretta, the private investigator on this, that is something that it still struck me because he said that as he was getting into this, he kept getting calls and he kept getting notifications from young ladies that lived there during this time saying, you know, I was continually harassed. And he said, I mean, more than once or twice or, you know, three times has he been contacted with people saying, hey, I had to full on sprint run from my car into my house like I was terrified or, you know, the stories of the, the girl who said I went to the gym and had to leave. I mean, I don't know what the heck was going on over there. Like, it baffles me because I would have been like, peace, I can't, you know, but there's something weird there. And even he says, like, there was something going on. And you always I mean, and I think Jennifer had that. That's why she told her friends she wasn't comfortable. And we always had that feeling sometimes when things aren't safe. But you just you just don't really think it's going to happen. And that's what's so disheartening about this is Jennifer was so safety conscious. She was so aware of that. She always told people she tried to do everything she could to keep herself safe. More so than really anybody I know of at that age to really say, call everybody when she's alone. I mean, I get it. Like my mom would always tell me to do that stuff, but she actually did it. So so that's one of the theories is that there were people, construction workers that were allowed to stay in some of the empty condominiums. So obviously, as we talked about, The police did not interview any of the people that were working there. And, you know, regardless whether they were documented, undocumented, whatever it was, there was really nobody that had a lockdown on what was going on. And the police never, you know, if they did interview, if they did get names and numbers, they didn't write them down. That is a problem. But a lot of people, you know, feel like that's exactly what happened, that Jennifer never made it out of um, her condominium. Right. And then it could have been one of the suspects, as we talked about, could have been one of the workers. That she was either walking out, locking her door and got attacked from behind and drug into one of the other rooms. And, you know, I still think it's interesting that Logan, her brother, he started asking the workers that same day. He kind of had this initial like, I want to know where my sister is. You know, he felt instinctively that there was something there, that somebody knew something and and just weren't normally being as helpful as you would think. Okay, so the other area of location is Huntington on the Green apartment where her car was located a couple days after she went missing. So where is that in relation to her condo? It is roughly a mile away from her condo. So Jennifer goes missing. You know, her parents come in. No, please come. The police say, "Uh, you know, she may have ran off, blah, blah, blah. But meanwhile, her family obviously got the search party together. And, you know, as we said, I remember people passing out the flyers. By four o'clock that afternoon, that family was passing out flyers saying Jennifer's missing. Something's happened. Um, But meanwhile, her car was missing. Again, that was less than roughly a mile from the mosaic. They found her car at the Huntington on the green. Right. So that's important if anybody lived there around 2006, saw something. And again, we're reiterating this again, because if you have called back in the day when the OPD was in charge, 
And, you know, we just want new calls, you know, new information. Maybe something was overlooked and wasn't written down. And that's so important that you call now. And that's why these things are important and these places are important because you may hear that she went missing. But Huntington on the Green is also an important location. So if you knew anything or saw anything then, and especially with Jennifer's car that was parked there and even the person of interest, that's so hard to understand that they actually have a grainy video of a person of interest. So someone parked the car and is on video wiping down the car. I think they said that, you know, maybe under a minute was in the car, wiping it down, gets out of the car, walks away. And you guys have to go check out the video of this person walking away because, you know, it's just uncanny. It's crazy that back in the day, those security cameras would every three seconds, I think they would snap a picture. Well, this person is literally blocked every three second when that's still the photo, the the face of the person is blocked. So there is a video out there. So that is definitely a person of interest. That person's out there and that person knows what happened to Jennifer. And that can be seen on the Facebook page as well. Jennifer Kessie's Facebook page. So again, if you saw anything out of the ordinary in those locations, just give them a call and let them know. And then don't forget also, Jennifer's purse is missing, her cell phone, her brother's friend's cell phone, her car keys, her credit cards, and her iPod, and her work briefcase have all never been found. Those items are still out there somewhere. Exactly. So since we've been doing this, we realize how many cases down the line get solved with something so incredibly trivial that somebody just said, this is ridiculous, 15 years ago, but I can't get this out of my mind. I promise you, if you guys reach out to Michael Toretta, if you know something, if you reach out to them, even if it's ridiculous, even if it's something that never amounts to anything, they will be so grateful to you. The Kessie family will absolutely be grateful. So if something comes to your mind or something happened that you just can't forget or get out of your system, please, by all means, reach out to them with that information. So Lake Fisher. So Michael Toretta has a witness that came forward and says that she's not sure that this has anything to do with it, but that she witnessed something really odd. But she saw a man 10 months after Jennifer's disappearance um, drive up to a lake in Gotha, Florida, which is right outside of Windermere, Orlando area. And he drove up in a truck, parks it by the lake, gets out, takes a, a big rolled up piece of carpet that was cumbersome and and hard to maneuver, throws it into the lake, stands there and watches it as it's submerged. And obviously she's watching this going like, eh, I ain't moving. I'm going to, this is weird. So she's watching this happen and the guy watches it submerge, gets in his truck and takes off. Now that's something that just kind of stuck with her and bothered her. And she came forward and reached out to Michael. So you know, if you saw a truck, if you know anything about Lake Fisher and, you know, or or you are familiar with that lake, we are looking for any type of carpet or something that may be in there that may be related to Jennifer's case. You know what? This is why we do this and bring out those details. And for the people that are listening. And, and as Drew said, he's so thankful to keep his daughter's story out there and people talking and, you know, that the community is just pulled together to do this, which is why we feel so honored that they trust us to share their stories as well. And again, like we've said, always the cold case playing cards, we think are such a fantastic way to just get these victims out there in front of people and hopefully, you know, rely on others to come forward and solve these and and bring these victims home for their families. And There's nothing more that these parents, when you speak with them, would rather have than answers, you know, and and really over justice, just answers. 
And one way you can do that for Jennifer Kessie, if you do have any information, you can like their Facebook page. It's called Find Jennifer Kessie on Facebook. And now any messages sent to that page can be directly, they will be directly forwarded to Drew and the investigator. So that he said that is the best way right now is to keep a record of things. You know, you don't have to say who you are. You can just say, hey, call me or whatever, but you can reach them through that Facebook page. And then also the Kessie family has a GoFundMe page called Help Us Find Jennifer Kessie. Not only can you make donations on that page to help fund the investigation, you can also reach Drew directly through the contact link there. We have so enjoyed this first season of Dealing Justice, and we are super excited to start our second season coming up, and we can't wait to have you guys along for it. We want to welcome our sponsor, Liz Morgan of Liz Morgan PR. She is amazing. And if you need to get your story heard, she is your lady. Since 2002, Liz Morgan PR has helped clients regionally and nationally tell their stories on TV and print and online. To discover more about Liz Morgan Public Relations, you can visit LizMorganPR.com. And I assure you, she's a rock star. And season two is going to bring a lot more stories and a lot more families that we hopefully can help. And if anyone out there does have a loved one on a card, feel free to reach out to us. And we'd love to take a look at that case as well and see about telling your loved one's story. Thanks so much for joining us on this first season of Dealing Justice. We are so excited and we're so grateful to you guys for listening. And we can't wait to see you again on season two. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Dealing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent, Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends to subscribe. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.